You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Back in 2015, filmmakers Jake Lloyd-Jones and Thomas Hyland followed around Melbourne's seminal post-punk outfit, Primitive Calculators, as they played a number of shows across China. The result is Which Way is China, a fascinating documentary that weaves you through the underground music scene in the People's Republic that has really taken off since the Chinese Communist government relaxed its cultural policies. The film is getting a Melbourne premiere at the Curtain Band Room on Wednesday, February 22nd, with live sets from Primitive Calculators and White Plus out of Beijing. This is also part of a tour curated by Chinese label Maybe Mars with a bunch of underground bands out of China playing across Melbourne and Sydney. To tell us more about it, we have the one and only Stuart Grant from Primitive Calculators here in the studio, as well as Julian Wu, who's, among other things, recorded Primitive Calculators' more recent tracks and also played with a whole bunch of seminal Australian bands over the years. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having us. Good morning. It's a... um, it's a great documentary. I had the pleasure of seeing a, um, having an advanced screening of it over the weekend. And um, something that was really fascinating was, to me, you talking about Stuart kind of coming back to Melbourne after having a long break with the Primitive Calculators and learning that you were part of this really seminal scene here at the time in sort of the late 70s and 80s, but not really knowing that. Did you get a sense from the bands in China that are part of this really exciting thing? It seems like that they feel that they are part of a, a really new and fresh thing at all. Yeah, I think there's a really conscious awareness that they're doing something that's new and important. And uh, uh, I found that with all of them. And, and they were, it was all about the change in Chinese culture and the, the, cha- the change in Chinese society. They were all very aware of that and very uncertain as to where that was going. Mm, Well, you better tell us how you ended up there. How did the the tour come about? Because of Julian. It was you. Yeah, well, um, in 2012, I was in China because my family had some business there, so I went over with my dad to, uh, you know, just help out with that. It was just selling off some of my grandfather's art collection after he died. And um, so I had a bit of time in Beijing and Shanghai, where my family's from. And while I was in Beijing, I... I went to a club called XP and I met a guy called Nevin Doma who is uh, one of the key people who works at Maybe Mars which is one of the two major Chinese independent music labels and so we just had a drink and had a bit of a chat and we kept in touch and then after that tour I uh, came back to Australia and then a few months later I was recording the primitive calculators in my kitchen and um from that, I actually, from talking with Stuart, I um, sort of picked up on his interest in Chinese culture. So a couple of years later, Nevin was out here with another band called Alpine Decline. I organised a short tour for them, and I thought it was a good opportunity to introduce Stuart to Nevin, and I introduced them, and uh, that tour came out of that meeting. Nevin is an extraordinary man. Nevin is the the single person who knows more about the whole picture of the Chinese music scene than any other individual. He's got a little punk band and he tours continuously with his little punk band doing shows in squats and all over the place. But he also tours, he toured us and he's toured numerous other American bands and he's brought Chinese bands to Australia. He knows the people that own the rehearsal rooms, he knows the managers, he knows the bookers, he knows the people that own the venues everywhere. And the thing about the Chinese music scene is that scenes, plural, is that it's really different everywhere and it's really volatile and a scene will spring up in one town 
and a few months later it's gone because the key people have gone somewhere else and started playing with someone else and so it's very volatile and it's very hard to keep tabs on. Wow, yeah. and so your interest in um, Chinese culture and, and music, where did that come from, Stuart? I spent a long time living in China and in Hong Kong and uh, it was just coincidental that through Julian, when after we'd reformed the calculators, that we got the Chinese connection. I had had lots of experience and I'm, I'm married into a Chinese opera family and so... Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of interest in, in China, Chinese stuff. <laughs> but th- this sort of came about really separately. And at the moment I'm planning a very large project of studying the way the Chinese music scene works because it's it's really exciting and there's new bands coming up all the time everywhere. But it's, as I say, gigs get shut down all the time. We we played with Torturing Nurse under in a hole in the ground in Shanghai and we got chased out by the police carrying our amplifiers. And uh, shows get shut down all the time. Yep. And quite famously, the Dirty Three had their show in Shanghai shut down and that was purely on the name of their band. Well, and it wasn't I, even on the lyrical content, obviously. Well, the, the, the bit that says three? No. <laughs> we... In order to play our set in Shanghai to an audience of above a certain number of people, we had to do still face-to-the-camera recordings of every song and provide lyric sheets with translations of the lyrics to the government and they banned one of our songs. That one we just heard. That one we just heard (laughs) because it had the word drugs in the title. Uh, But my thesis is that it is definitely possible to do sustainable engagement with the Chinese music industry. Mm. And Julian in his way and I in my project we're, we're all, and a number of other people are currently engaged in trying to do a sustainable two-way cultural engagement between independent music scenes in Australia and China. And the thing is, China is the biggest music scene in the world now and it's almost completely an independent music scene. Mm. And yeah. Is, do you want to involve governments in what you're doing? Because, you know, you hear all the time, like, the Australian government's taking a delegation of business people or a delegation of artists or whatever to China as part of, I don't know, engagement between the countries. Or is this very personal, very independent of the kind of governments here and there? In my current project, I'm uh, discussing partnerships with uh, APRA, and Sounds Australia with the Australia Council for the Arts and with Creative Victoria. These discussions at the moment are ongoing about what the nature of their support for the project will be. Mm. Fascinating. And, and I mean, in a place like, like Melbourne or even more broadly around Australia, we've got things like community radio and, and strong, I guess, supportive networks that, um, that, you know, celebrate live music. How do bands kind of operate in China when they have to kind of, you know, sneak around, maybe find venues that are underground? How does the, the, the network between those acts... It's a lot of social facilitate? media, um, just the things like flyers in record stores. Um, they've got, you know, different... I mean, they don't have Facebook, but they have things like Doban and WeChat, so a lot of stuff is really more like a peer-to-peer version of publicity rather than, uh, say, going onto any mainstream media... We chat. What if if you are going to do a gig in China, and you're going to have more than a few hundred people there, and you advertise that, there is a chance the government will shut you down. But if you have a large closed WeChat group that might have thousands of people on it, 
because it's a closed broadcast, then the government won't bother you. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of little twists and turns like that that the Chinese bands have to negotiate. Yeah, there is a lot of censorship, but it's the independent music scene really exists in this gigantic grey area. Like, the, the government really, as long as you don't bring yourself to attention, you can get away with quite a lot, but you really do have to just keep it really low-key and not, you know, publicise it outside of your own groups. And we cover a lot of this in the movie that screens at the curtain on Wednesday night. Advanced tickets are now available. <laughs> Please book ahead. In the movie, uh, we cover the fact of the way in which the Chinese scene is growing up due to the particular social, cultural, administrative, local, economic factors that that they have to deal with, mm, yeah. but it still continues to grow mm. and it grows virally. Well, it's really exciting, isn't it? And, and what about the, the music itself, the, the quality of the music, the musicians, the kind of, you know, the musical education and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. It, it well, gives... It's actually really interesting to say it's, it's totally different from the way that music's evolved in the West because pretty much when you start growing up, you're hearing popular music from a very young age, so you probably heard your parents play the Beatles and stuff like that. But because of the Cultural Revolution, it meant there was no real popular culture except for government-sanctioned culture from the end of the Second World War in about the late 40s till the time that Mao died in the late 70s. So Chinese music really just started engaging with the West in any major way was probably 1985 when Wham! toured. And um, I think <laughs> uh, between those those years, you started to get a bit of a, I guess, a cassette culture um, from foreign students uh, coming in and bringing their mixtapes. So then you started to have Chinese kids being exposed to punk rock, you know, but, but it was bands like Sonic Youth and Pavement and... My Bloody Valentine and Jesus and Mary Chain. And uh, and also with the cutouts, which were... The Chinese was Dachau, and that's when re- records and CDs were sent over from Japan and other places so that the plastic could be used to be recycled and things like traffic cones and park benches. And people used to go and go through that waste and pick out the good records. And so there was a, it was very much a black market thing. Wow, that's an amazing second-hand yeah. music culture. <laughs> consequently, they absorbed 60 years of Western youth culture in the space of 10 years. Mm. So you get all these really strange hybrids, like Avi Akubo, who sound a bit like an 80s new romantic band combined with canto pop elements and uh but they're a really grinding hard hitting rock band at the same time and uh all sorts of weird things uh it's like duck fight goose they sound like probably say bowie and iggy in berlin but if that was shanghai instead of berlin I love that. In the film, you just see that experimentation and these kind of genres just clashing into each other that you, you just wouldn't see a band doing that or trying that. In, in, even in a place like Melbourne that has a really vibrant musical scene, it seems really unique and fresh. And that's the definition of creativity, when two things that have never been put together go together and a third new thing springs out of it. And as, as I say in the film, uh, the cream always rises to the top and China 
is a really big pot of cream. And uh, there's so many musicians of such a high degree of excellence and a high degree of adventure. I think in my experience in Western bands, you either get people who are really creative and adventurous, and the peop- but the people who are really skillful and virtuosic at their instruments tend to play very safely. Mm. Here you've got people like Li Jianhong and uh, Li Qing who are incredibly talented musicians and skill sets uh, that are just astonishing but they're right out there at the forefront of making new musical logics and exploring whole new sounds. And Li Qing basically deconstructs her guitar on the stage and undoes all the strings and plays it and does them back up again and bends it. And at times, watching her play the guitar, I felt like she was tying it in knots. <laughs> I was going to ask about women in this music scene. Is, is it a there's, really strong role? Yeah, there's quite a uh, lot of key musicians in many major bands who were, you know, uh, are female. One of the earliest bands was a band called Hang on the Box, who I believe will play later. And um, But uh, one of the more popular bands in another label is a band called Hedgehog, and they toured here a few years ago with Regurgitator, and their drummer is this girl called Adam. She's about four foot tall. She looks like Dora the Explorer, but she plays like John Bonham. <laughs> I saw a few very petite quiet young women who would sit behind a drum kit and explode yeah, like, a torrent of fury in, yeah. in all sorts of different yeah. bands. Like Jang Jang from <laughs> Gate to Other Side. <laughs> yeah. So many stories. And, and are other um, musicians from around the world also reaching out and making connections into China? Is it happening from it's Japan and the States? It's starting and to happen England? a little bit. The Japanese bands get shut down all the time. Mm. <laughs> See, the reason that people get shut down is not because the big government says we don't want this. China is not, as Nevin says, China's not a place that's ruled by a rule of law. It's ruled by bureaucracy. So it's about the prejudice of local administrators determines who gets shut down and why. If somebody who knows somebody makes a complaint, that somebody is then obliged to do something about it. So they talk to somebody else who talks to somebody else and then suddenly the police appear at your gig. Uh, I find it right really interesting how kind of politics is dealt with in the film because the the bands there, I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's you who makes this point or someone else in the film, but um, often Western audiences will expect that a Chinese band should be political, should be sort of, you know, talking about the government and being really open about it. But the way that the bands describe their music, it's that well, we're, we're kind of doing something that's, that's totally out of the box and that in itself is kind of a, a political statement. It's like um, uh, another fantastic woman who's the lead Kang Mao, who's the leader of the band The Subs, and she is one of the biggest rock stars in China, and she does stage dives into large, giant festival crowds and stuff. And she said to me, "If I wrote lyrics like you, I'd be in jail." And uh, she so she said that has caused her to evolve a very evocative, poetic style of writing. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of allusion in the lyrics, like Kasi Kaz of a song called Zhong Nang Hai, which is a brand of cigarettes, but it's also the name of uh, the Communist Party headquarters. So <laughs> the uh, lyrics are ostensibly about the cigarettes, but, um, of course, everyone you know, who, who's a fan knows what it's really about. Yeah. So, and, and are these artists famous in China? Some of they're them are. They're popular, but they're not really famous in the same way that you would be famous here. So, 
you wouldn't have anyone who would get to the level of even someone like a Paul Kelly or Hudegurus or Nick Cave, for instance. But it's relative because the are... Uh if you if you're a band the size of a band that plays to 200 people in Melbourne in China you're the size of a band that plays to 1000 people mm. because the crowds are just bigger there's more people and there's a there's a bunch of bands coming out to tour currently at the moment what sort of interest have you you found from Australian audiences for this you know really fresh and exciting brand of Chinese underground music well i think people who've had the chance to hear it are really enthusiastic and passionate about it so I know several people who are going to fly down from Sydney to see bird striking because they're only going to be playing in Melbourne. Uh, But uh, I guess the problem is really that a lot of people haven't really had the opportunity to hear the music yet. So they, you know, you can't be passionate about what you don't know. But obviously shows like this will help change that situation. Yeah, And Mm. and and I, I imagine... Chinese students, in, um, students studying in Melbourne yes, well, and elsewhere might be interested. Classic cars um, have a very big following. Like they did a tour here just um, in 2011, and they were just playing low key shows um, like the Barwon Club and two AM at Slot at Pony, and they were all just very small crowds because they didn't really do any publicity. And then, except for when they played at the Toff in town, because of being in Chinatown, all the Chinese students saw the uh, poster, the you know, the, the fact they were playing on the blackboard there. And so that show was packed out, and it was the only time I've ever seen crowd surfing at the Toff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, next Wednesday, when we play in the Curtain, yes, in the right. middle of Chinese student land, that, uh, that's gonna when the film shows... That <laughs> We'll get lots of Chinese students. I hadn't thought of that. It's um, yeah. I mean, I was scribbling away as I was watching the the film because you know it's exciting as anyone who's into music to find this this well of really you know interesting fresh stuff. It's um, it's you know it's it's it is really exciting for anyone who's into that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, and uh, that's that's what excites me is that it is a whole new wellspring of music. Mm. But also in that film, Thomas the the DOP and Jake the director made a, a really beautiful document. All those those beautiful long shots out of the train windows mm. of that vast cesspit of Chinese exploding industry and white sky and smudge. It's just, they made a really beautiful film. I and think. I wonder if that's where the, the title came from, Which Way is China? Well, it's so vast. Well, you had the, a few elements in that. That yeah, it's, The film is a travelogue of our tour. Um, you've got this bunch of bumbling geriatrics in this punk band trying to find their way through all of that yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh and but also that that which way is china is everybody you speak to is kind of nervous nobody knows what's going to happen nobody knows what the government's going to do about the music scene nobody knows where and how it's progressing uh Everybody is excited, but everybody is also really nervous. And so which way is China going? Mm-hmm. And particularly with the new government, the new uh, uh, chairman of the party, the, the way that that has unfolded, uh, it wasn't what people expected. People expected an ever-growing opening cultural opening, economic opening, but there's been a lot of shutting down in mm-hmm. the last five years. 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is a really fascinating film visually and, and the sense you get of different places in China because it's not a place I've, I've been to or know a great deal about, but you go to a, a hippie town, I think it's called Yiwu, is that? Yiwu. Yiwu, yeah. and which, where you're, you're playing to, you know, um, people in a room while it's like this torrential rain outside and it's coming in and, and then there's Wuhan towards the end of the film, which is like kind of the punk rock capital and there's these really interesting... Mm-hmm microcosms of, of, of culture in these different cities that you go to mm. and uh that yeah that's something that i think the film captures well how different it is at all places across the country yeah like there's a really strong post-rock scene in dalian mm. and i guess um shanghai is a bit more like the chinese version of sydney so you get a lot more kind of it's you get on one hand, a torturing nurse who are pretty extreme, but then there's a lot of Shanghai bands can also be quite commercial and almost mainstreamy. Mm-hmm. But post rock is huge in China. Mm. They love it. <laughs> mm. And um, we're almost out of time. But before Ed, you get out here, I've got to ask about primitive calculators. You um, you put out a single last year on drugs. We heard mm-hmm. sort of the shortened version of it just before, and I've heard it getting quite a few spins on Triple R as well. Are you planning to put out an album anytime yes, soon? Yes, the album is coming out pro- hopefully um, on It Records. It'll be coming out hopefully by uh, Marchish. Um, it's recorded. It's been recorded for a long time. Uh, it's also called On Drugs. The song On Drugs is the title track. Uh, it's kind of um, a development for us. It's a mixture of bad 90s techno meets The Temptations meets Horrible Noise. It's a really interesting development for Primitive Calculators. It's got that kind of um, funk soul kind of element to it, mm. which I, I haven't heard a lot in, in your music previously. Yeah, between 1980 when the primitive calculators broke up and 2009 when the primitive calculators reformed i spent most of my life touring with funk bands doing james <laughs> brown stuff so um the, the title of the tour of china not on drugs maybe or? <laughs> yes, the song on drugs was banned in china but we played it anyway well, um, you can catch Primitive Calculators playing at the um, the Melbourne premiere of Which Way is China on Wednesday, February 22nd. So that's not this Wednesday, the one after down at the Curtain Band Room. Tickets are 15 bucks plus booking fee or $20 on the door if still available. But um, I'm going to be telling everyone about it. So hopefully the room fills up before then. Um, and there's a bunch of other shows um, from some of the Chinese bands that are touring, such as Bird Striking, Car Seat Cars as well, which you can check out online, including um, playing at the Old Bar, um, Chairman Car Art exhibition with white plus jp shiloh and um, bird striking and low tide playing at the curtain hotel on february 23rd and also at the tote car sick cars bird striking and white plus is it, is it white plus is that how yeah. you, white plus yeah, yes <laughs> and white plus are also playing with us on when, next wednesday at the curtain yeah so lots to get into and um so yeah check out the website and head down to to see that on wednesday and uh, it's a fantastic film and i hope it gets much more of an airing will it be sort of open for, for more screenings do you know? I think they're trying to find someone to put it on TV first, and mm. once that happens, then it'll get a DVD release. Mm. Jake's, Jake's doing all that stuff through his ABC connections. Oh, great. Good luck. <laughs> and we're hearing more and more about South Australia in our news these days, mostly due to the state's energy issues, but also due to some unique political and economic reasons. That state's going to be hard hit with the closure of the auto industry this year, but unlike Victoria here, which will also be hard hit, uh, South Australia has the independent Nick Xenophon to keep those manufacturing jobs on the national stage. And then there's the gains the state made through last year's election campaign where it was promised the submarine contract. And uh, 
I suppose there's a whole lot of issues there with regards to the the kind of um, renewables bashing that's going on, criticism at the federal level to the decisions made by the Labor government over in South Australia. And to understand, to help us understand more about what's going on, um, Professor John Spear is joining us. He's a director of the Australian in- Industrial Transformation Institute at Flinders University, and he's also penned an essay in the latest Griffith Review uh, called Stormy Times, and it certainly is stormy times, John, and uh, it sounds like you're well-placed to kind of paint a picture for us of of South Australia. Why is it that we're hearing so much about it uh, across the country these days? Well, it is rare that South Australia is so much at the, uh, the centre of the, the political agenda at the moment, but I, I think it's for a number of reasons. It's a it's a bit of a canary in the coal mine in the Australian economy, if you like, uh, both from the point of view of electricity policy uh, and also from the point of view of, of Australian manufacturing and the future of Australian manufacturing. I mean, South Australia, like the rest of the nation, uh, was relatively unscathed from the global financial crisis of, in, in the early stages, particularly because of the intervention by the federal government at the time. Uh, but then the Australian dollar escalated uh, and that really hurt South Australian manufacturing and exporting generally uh, and um, there's a similar case in, in Victoria the manufacturing states were really harmed by what was a two-speed economy uh, in the wake of the GFC there was strong demand from China and other nations for our commodities but uh, the high Australian dollar acted a bit like a wrecking ball on Australian manufacturing and in South Australia we lost about 30,000 manufacturing jobs uh, over a relatively short period of time. Uh, that's improved a bit the last year or so um, but that was a big hit and that's of course coming before the closure of the auto industry at the end of this year. And, um, I mean, we've had uh, losses of manufacturing jobs here in Victoria and South Australia already has quite a high unemployment rate. Do you see that South Australia is perhaps less well-equipped than Victoria has proven itself to be with the loss of those manufacturing jobs? Well, it's a much smaller economy economy than than Victoria's and I I, I suppose it's also arguably uh, far less diversified too. So it's less able to withstand the shocks that um, we've experienced in the post-GFC period. Uh, and also the auto shock uh, at a proportion of our manufacturing is much greater um, than it is in Victoria. So you know, there are difficult circumstances um, facing South Australia. So it does warrant, I think, uh, additional support to be able to work its way through what is you know, one of the most challenging times uh, economically for, you know, I suppose, since the 1990s recession. Um, uh, but having said that, um, there is growth in the South Australian economy. Uh, like other parts of Australia, uh, there's substantial growth in the services sector, particularly in uh, health, ageing and community services. Uh, but the, the reality is that the jobs in those sectors are not uh, as secure. They, they tend to be more part-time and uh, contract-based uh, and not so well paid. So uh, we're not able to replace the jobs that have been lost in manufacturing with uh, as many knowledge-intensive high-wage jobs as we would like. So in order to do that, we have to accelerate uh, diversification of some of our industrial sectors. And as you say, the, the South Australian con- economy is smaller than, than other states' economies. But so why is it then that we're hearing so much about it, do you think? Uh, is it because 
the Defence Industry Minister is there, Christopher Pine. Uh, Jay Weatherall's coming under under siege, really, um, around energy policy from the federal level. But then there's the Nick Xenophon party. Uh, is it these political actors that are keeping it front and centre of our news? Look, I think that's, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That is a big part of the story. Um, Nick Xenophon uh, was, of course, a very dominant player in South Australia uh, um, when he was in state politics, but uh, since he's hit the national stage, uh, he's been a strong voice for South Australia, but he's also diversified his interests into uh, almost any area that you might want to imagine. So he's a very powerful and influential uh, politician in his own right and becoming more so. And the expectation is that uh, with the state election here, he, he will also pick up quite a few um, South Australian-based seats. Uh, look, I think um, there are a few announcements that have meant that South Australia is much more at the centre of national attention than it normally is, and of course all the anticipation around uh, where the submarines would be built and where other defence projects might also be undertaken has uh, been a subject of attention for the last six months, um, maybe longer, and uh, so that has occupied a lot of the media attention. Um, the, on the other hand, the, the, the impending shock of the closure of the auto industry has also put uh, Australia on the national stage for all the, all the wrong reasons. And then, of course, we've had um, these extraordinary extreme weather events in South Australia, which have played out um, in really diabolical ways uh, in, in terms of the impact on our electricity system with the major blackout in September last year. Uh, leading up to the most recent events, um, which have really exposed the inadequacy of the national electricity market. And that's why I sort of suggest that maybe South Australia might be regarded as a bit of a canary in the coal mine for the inadequacies of the, the national, national electricity market. And, I mean, I, I'm really interested in the attitudes in South Australia towards the Premier Jay Weatherall because he seems to be someone who does take a risk. Uh, I mean, there's an election coming up, I think it's next year, in South Australia. And what is the, the public opinion um, like t towards him and his government? Well, it's, you, certainly couldn't, you certainly can't say that he's not... Uh, a risk taker because he's taken some really, really substantial risk. The, the major one being, of course, the, um, the uh, Nuclear Royal Commission. Um, and, uh, and that Royal Commission was, of course, designed to generate debate here in South Australia about the prospect of um, storing uh, nuclear waste here and also possibly um, starting up a, a nuclear industry that might ultimately include nuclear power generation. Now, that for uh, a left-leaning Labor Premier was um, very surprising. So uh, he won a lot of support from um, uh, industry uh, and um, from a lot of very powerful and influential forces here in South Australia for that uh, initiative. Uh, but he also attracted a lot of criticism from the uh, traditional Labor support base for that. So uh, it was a bit of a mixed story coming out of the Nuclear Royal Commission. Uh, but look, I think the response, recent response to the uh, rolling blackouts and the electricity debacle here in South Australia, uh, is uh, if if that's played through to its logical conclusion, and that is the need for state intervention, then he's probably likely to pick up some strong support in South Australia. Um, uh, there has been a lot of frustration, I think, with the blackouts and uh, and with escalating prices in electricity prices that is here in South Australia 
but if the state government intervenes, it could pick up a lot of ground that's lost in recent times and we could end up having a very competitive election here in South Australia. And that would be a surprise to most commentators because Labor's been in power for so long. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with John Spear, the Director of the Australian Industrial Transformation Institute at Flinders University, all about his essay in the latest Griffith Review, Stormy Times, Living with Uncertainty, which is all about industry and and job prospects in South Australia. And um, as you touch on in the essay, John, Malcolm Turnbull, since becoming Prime Minister, has spoken a lot about innovation and launched the National Science and Innovation Agenda back in 2015. It sounds like we need this more than ever, particularly in South Australia, but you say in the essay that real progress on this has been slow. Why is that? Well, um, unlike other nations, Australia's been pretty slow to adopt uh, the innovation agenda. There was big discussion during the, uh, the 1990s and then we really uh, had a decade that was uh, almost silent uh, on innovation. And then recently Malcolm Turnbull released the, the Science and Innovation Agenda, which was, I think, very widely welcomed, um, but uh, what I think most commentators would like to see is a a much more robust uh, agenda on the innovation front, more um, investment by the government uh, in the innovation agenda, uh, and a broader innovation agenda that uh, is as ambitious as those that that we're seeing unfold uh, in uh, Europe and uh, Scandinavia. Those nations are really leading um, the innovation stakes and we're probably uh, five to ten years behind them and uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do. But having said that, uh, this is a start. Um, I'm expecting that the South Australian government will probably want to uh, make its own mark on the innovation agenda in the lead to the state election and, and invest more in industrial diversification. But yeah, that's one of the keys uh, to South Australia working its way through this uh, challenging period of time. And, uh, I mean, you are, and you've said earlier, that you're supportive of, of the right kind of stimulus for the economy in South Australia, John, but can... South Australia do it on its own? Like, are, are there sort of certain policy mechanisms or st- stimulation or something that can be done to enable South Australia to pull itself out? Or as with the energy market and as with water before that, is it a national framework that's required to support South Australia's economy? Uh, look, it, it, indeed, it is a national um, uh, framework that's necessary to help South Australia and indeed other parts of the nation work through um, this very challenging time that we're living through where uh, the pressures on Australian industry are enormous uh, either from uh, low cost competition um, in many other parts of the world or from other nations being uh, faster and more successful innovators than we are. In the short term South Australia has a problem um, in that its unemployment rate is higher, its underemployment rate is um, much higher than the um, official unemployment rate, almost double. Uh, and male unemployment, male unemployment as a consequence of the very slow growth in male full-time jobs and, and part-time jobs has stalled. So uh, there's a need in the lead-up to the automotive closure for a major stimulus package to be introduced. Uh, uh, we had a bit of a breakthrough last year when the federal government and the state government committed to around about $750 million for the so-called Dalton Connector Road project, but that won't be enough um, to offset the impacts of the automotive closure when that occurs in October this year. 
yeah, and all those social problems that come along with um, unemployment or underemployment. Uh, we're out of time, but thank you so much um, for joining us, John, and no, no doubt we're going to keep hearing about South Australia over the coming days and weeks. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having us on. Thanks. Um, Professor John Spear, Director of the Australian Industrial Transformation Institute over at Flinders University. And the latest Griffith, if you're interested in these issues, is uh, packed full of essays looking at that state in South Australia. And I um, really do love how uh, Griffith does kind of take a magnifying glass to... I think we, we spoke to someone about New Zealand uh, mm. last year and just to really get into and understand some of the um, the social but also some of the, the poetry and... and fiction coming out of It's a really South mixed Australia. bag, which is nice yeah. too. So you can find uh, John's essay in there. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.